Take your Bibles now, if you would, please, and if you'll open them to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, I want to remind you again that in December we start a new preaching series from the book of Matthew, and I'm really uh, anxious to, to get into that preaching because Matthew is a very evangelistic gospel, and uh, I love to talk about the story of Jesus, we'll talk about his birth, and then of course the ministry throughout his life, and, and then we come to his tragic and yet triumphant story of his death. In the meantime, though, I've been taking the month of November to speak about salvation and service. We've discussed uh, God's call upon a person's life, how that God calls us to salvation. There's a time when God speaks to us individually. He gives a specific call that uh, tells us that we are a sinner, and God opens up our heart to realize that we are sinners against God. And then God comes in with the light of the gospel of Christ, and then we believe And the Bible teaches that we're saved. But then after we're saved, we are called to service. We're called to share our faith with one another, or with other people, I should say. And uh, last week in our lesson, we talked about Philip as he went to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. God called him out to preach to a particular person. And that teaches that we are also to be a witness and to share the gospel. But today I want to change the focus of the message just a little bit. And I'd like to talk about our duty after we have received Christ. After we've been called, we've been saved, God wants us to serve him. But God has a particular place where he wants us to serve him. And God wants us to work for him through his church. We have an example here in the book of Acts about church responsibility and how a community of Christians were effective in reaching their neighborhood, reaching their city, and then eventually the whole world was reached with the gospel of Christ. I'd like you to take your Bibles, please. Acts chapter 2, if you'll stand with me. I want to begin reading today uh, in verse number 14. So if you'll go up to verse 14, let's start at that point. And here the scripture says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. And then what follows that in the next verses are Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And we come down to verse number 38, if you'll look there. And they ask a question after they've heard this message. Now when they heard this, after they heard Peter preach, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then if you'll go down to verse number 41, here's where our reading for our text today. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for those who have come to hear your word today. We ask you, Lord, for a special blessing that we might understand and hear the words that are spoken today and take them into our hearts and act accordingly. Bless in this message. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are many people who believe that Acts chapter 2 identifies the beginning of the church. I personally don't believe that the church starts in Acts chapter 2 because I believe that it was founded during Christ's earthly ministry, his personal ministry. When Jesus called out his 12 apostles, uh, those 12 men were the beginning of his church. As we know, only 11 of those men were really saved. Uh, One of them was an imposter. One uh, looked like, he acted like, he talked like a true follower of Christ. But it was those 11 men that were faithful, that did trust Jesus. Those 11 men were called out and given the commission to preach the gospel of Christ. And I do believe that that is the beginning of the Lord's church. What I think that we find here in Acts chapter 2 is the empowering of the church. In Acts 1.15, we learn that the church had grown to 120 disciples. And here in the beginning of chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon those 120. That great sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost resulted that 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What took place at the end of chapter 2, the things that we've just read, I think that these are a model for all Christians today. When we're saved, you ought to be baptized. When you've received Christ as your Savior, you ought to go into the waters of baptism as obedience to Him. And then that's what adds you into those people who are the members of the church. And then it is the duty of of all Christians to serve the Lord through His church. I don't think that God has called any person to be a freelance Christian. The church is where God works, and if you're going to serve the Lord in spirit and in truth, you ought to join yourself to a New Testament church. Now today, I want to talk about how this first church grew so rapidly and how that their witness is an example for us. I want you to notice first today the union in this church, the union. Verse 44 tells of the union. The scripture says, And all that believed were together. So there was a bond between these people. They had joined in a union. They had unity because they believed in the same Lord. They had the same desires and they had the very same purposes. Now this is the thing, one of the things that you get with church membership. You come together with a group of people which although they may be very diverse, they may not look like you, but they are people that love the Lord. They have a desire to serve the Lord just like you. You may not find in the church where everyone looks alike. We don't all have the same background. We're not all socially alike. We're not economically alike. And we're not even politically alike. But we all share one encompassing commonality. We've all been saved by the same Lord We all have the same master, and we all have the very same work to do. And what we are to do is to carry out our duties as those who have been saved by God's grace and have been called for God's purpose. I think there are many Christians, many churches that have gone off track in the ensuing years of Christianity. But here is a church that we read about in the book of Acts that had the right beginning. They had the right idea, and this made them a very closely knit entity. Verse 42 says they continued steadfastly. 
Let's take just a minute here in the beginning of the message to talk about how they were steadfast and about this union. First, we can say that they were steadfast in fellowship. Fellowship is the key word that we find in verse 42 because the Bible, when it uses the word fellowship, it indicates a partnership. When you become a part of a church, you join in with a partnership with other Christians. Every person who's saved, all of us have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you get saved, you get that relationship. All of us become the children of God. And it only stands to reason that if we are all children of the same parent, that we're entering into a relationship with one another. And we're to continue and accentuate that relationship by becoming a part of the Lord's church and fellowship with one another. Now, partners are people who share. Partners are people who are together. And so what happens then if you are a member of the church and you don't bother to come together with your church for fellowship? Well, you would be declaring by your absence that fellowship is not really one of your highest priorities. If you don't fellowship with God's people, then you disobey one of the very basic commandments that we find for all Christians. In Hebrews, the the writer says there that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because the coming together of God's people is for the encouragement of us all to have that fellowship with other Christians. I've heard many Christians say, uh, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And, of course, that's a true statement. Going to church won't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage will make you a car. But to be the kind of Christian that you ought to be and one that's close to Christ and one that that, that follows and, and does what Christ says to do, you must fellowship with God's people. And an indication of how close you are to Christ is how do you love the fellowship of God's people? How do you like to be together with other Christians? Because closeness with Christ will always develop that desire to be with his people. So one of the duties after you have been saved is that you're called out to this duty of fellowship. Another important aspect of the union that we find here was they were steadfast in stewardship. Verse 44 says, And and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Much of the time when we talk about stewardship, the thing that comes to people's mind is the tithe. In order to be a good steward, you must tithe. But stewardship actually goes much deeper than that because stewardship includes how you handle everything that God has given you. A steward is a person who manages the affairs and the properties of another. If you look into the parables that Jesus taught, you'll find many times that Jesus was speaking on the issue of stewardship. Now, I don't have time to go into Jesus' parables today, but there is one statement that Jesus made that sort of sums up the responsibilities of a good steward. He said in Luke chapter 12, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. It's interesting there that Jesus is not so much concerned about material possessions as he is then pointing out that a good steward is one who deals correctly with people as well as with his money. A good steward is a person who helps people, and that's why he mentions here the giving of meat, which means the giving of food whenever that's needed. 
Now, if you relate Jesus' statement in Luke to the actions of people in Acts chapter 2, the Scripture says they had all things common, they sold their possessions and goods, and they parted them to all men as every man had need. What that teaches is that this first church was a very generous people. They were like-minded, they were partners, they had that fellowship, and so the people of the church were those who took care of one another. There is no command in Scripture that we are to live in communes or that we are to live under a socialistic government. Neither communism or socialism actually fit the biblical model because both of those things include coercion. But for these people, this was something that was voluntary. To them, good stewardship was meeting the human need. And so that's what caused them to sell their possessions to meet needs. Now, the Scripture does not mean that they sold everything that they had. They sold their houses and they put all the money into a common pool. But it does mean that their fellowship and their partnership ended their selfishness. And they considered that whatever God gives, it's a means of helping other people. And you should always look at your possessions that way. Always look at the money that you make. God has blessed me because he wants me to bless and to help others. So what is real stewardship in the church? It's when we meet needs. And that may be meeting a spiritual need or or a material need. It may be that when a loved one dies and a family is in grief, that some members of the church take some food to that family to help them. It might be that the ladies of the church get together and they say to someone, we'll help take care of your children when they're sick. It may be that when a member of the church needs to move to another part of town, that others come and they help load a truck for them so they can move. Those are the kinds of things that you get with the fellowship of God's people and the partnership that we have here. That's a part of our stewardship. That's what we do in a church. We have all things common because we're partners. Now, there's a third thing that we notice here, that they were steadfast in worship. Look down in verse number 47. This verse begins this way, praising God. Why did you come to church today? Several months ago, when I was preaching from the book of 1 Corinthians, I was preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and there was a sermon that I preached from that text that the the title of it was, Can I Be Happily Unmarried? Not can I be happily married, but can I be happily unmarried? And I, I had the title of the message. Brother Bill put it out on the sign just like we normally do. And that particular Sunday, there was a young lady who was passing by, and she saw the title of the sermon on the, on the sign, and so she came into the church. Uh, after the sermon was over, she said, I saw the title of that sermon on the sign, and so I stopped in to just listen to the message and see what that was about. But she says, it's not what I expected. Now, believe me, I'm used to people telling me they're very disappointed in the sermons. But she said, it's not what I expected. But the question that I really want to ask is, why did you come to church today? Did you come here today because I'm preaching a sermon? And if that's why you came, if you're here for that reason, you're here for the wrong reason, because the reason that we come to church is to worship. And so if you leave the church today and you say, I didn't enjoy church today, I couldn't worship because I didn't like the sermon, then you have totally the wrong idea. You've got it all wrong. Our purpose is to come here and praise God to worship him. And so if the determining factor of whether you can worship God is by the sermon that you hear, you put too much faith in me. 
That's too much pressure on me. Your faith is misplaced because we're here to worship God. Now let's expand on that a little bit in this next point. Number two is the action of this church. This was a church that had a lot of activity in their worship. And one important aspect of worship would certainly be that you cannot, that you, uh, that we must worship where God is. Understand that. We have to worship where God is. You may say, no, wait just a minute. God's everywhere. So what do you mean we must worship where God is? Well, certainly we all do believe that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. But there are some places where God will not meet with you spiritually. The Spirit of God is not in the worship. Now, I want you to notice some things about this church that they worship correctly. First of all, they stuck to the truth. Verse number 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So they didn't come to church to to try out all different kinds of opinions. After they were saved and they were baptized and they became a part of the church, the very first thing on the list of their activities is the study of the apostles' doctrine. Now, they had a lot of other activities, I'm sure, but this is the very foundational one in the church. And without this, there's nothing that we do that amounts to anything because it will not be blessed by God. God is not present where there is no truth. So the first thing that you want to ask about a church that maybe that you're a prospective member of, or maybe you want to ask it of the church that you are a member of, does this church teach, does it preach the apostles' doctrine? And a church must be a spirit-filled church, and where the spirit is, there will always be truth. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now here it says then that they, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What does he mean by that? I mean, what does it mean to continue in the apostles' doctrine? Well, it means that these apostles were chosen by Christ to teach the things, the very same things that Jesus taught. Now, there are many people in those days that heard Jesus preach and they'd met Christ uh, They witnessed his life, and they were there for his death. There were many more people that became Christians after they heard about the resurrection. And that's why we find uh, on the day of Pentecost, there are 120 disciples there that are part of this church. So there are many people there who saw the same things. They were present just like the apostles were. But these particular men were the ones that were specially called out by Christ to remember and to relate his teachings. Now, if you think about it, who could possibly remember everything that Jesus taught? Nobody could remember all of it. And so Jesus promised that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would come upon these apostles, and he says, the Spirit will call to your remembrance the things that I've said. And so the apostles, because they had that special ability that Christ had given to remember, the Spirit had given them to remember what he said, they continued teaching the things that Jesus taught. You know, there are many people who look at other scriptures and say, well, if Jesus didn't say it, then it may or may not be true. Everything that you read in the Word of God, they're the words of God. God spoke to the apostles. Those are the words of God as if God spoke them himself because he did. These apostles called, were, had a special ability. They called to remembrance the things that Jesus taught. Now, how do we know it's just these men? Why did their teachings become the doctrines of the church? Well, one way we know is in verse number 43. It says, and fear 
came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. The signs and the wonders were part of the proof of their apostleship. No one has ever been able to replicate the things that the apostles did. No one can do those miracles. And those miracles said that this message is authenticated by God. So what happens when someone comes along and they say, well, the Bible doesn't have to be our only authority. There are other things that we can listen to. There are other writings that we can, that we can consider to be the writings that, that we ought to follow, and that ought to be our practice. Why do we say only the Bible? How about the Book of Mormon? I mean, why can't we take the Book of Mormon? Or why, why don't we take the Watchtower, the Jehovah Witnesses? Why don't we use that? What about all those man-made traditions that you find in, the, in many churches, like the worship of Mary and, and confession to the priest? None of that's in the Apostles' Doctrine because it's not in the Bible. And so the first thing that you ask, does this church teach the Bible? Is the Bible their only authority? And if the answer to that question is no, then that is a place where you cannot worship God. And the reason is the truth is not there. You see, the the people continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, not any other doctrine, And these were the things that Jesus taught. So they stuck to the truth and only the truth. They didn't develop their own systems. They didn't develop their own theology. This is what Jesus taught. These are the words that Jesus gave them. Second thing we notice about them is that they sat at the Lord's table. Verse 42. Again, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And listen, and in the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread there is a reference to the Lord's table. Now, they spent a lot of time about, you know, in fellowshipping around food at other times. Uh, they fellowshiped in food and by taking their common meals, like something that we're going to do next Sunday uh, as we celebrate Thanksgiving. That type of breaking of bread is what verse number 46 is about. I mean, that, that kind of fellowship around food. But here in verse number 42, the reference here is to the Lord's Supper. And I know that because it would be totally unnecessary to say that they continued steadfastly eating their regular meals. I mean, I can look at you out here today and I can tell none of you has any problem continuing steadfastly eating regular meals. But I can't say honestly about all the members of Berean Baptist Church that you are steadfast about coming to the Lord's table. Now, in our church, the members of the church celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday night of the month. And many times there are members of Berean Baptist Church that are not here for the Lord's Supper. Some of you I've never seen at the Lord's table. Folks, the Lord's Supper is not optional for Christians. This is a privilege that you get with church membership. It's commanded by the Lord. And did you know that the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that God purifies his church? Participation in the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper is a means of purification. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, because I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. You don't receive grace, any kind of grace, by partaking in the Lord's Supper. But what I am saying is the same thing the Apostle Paul said, because he said that before you take the supper, you must examine yourself, you must have your sins confessed, and the inevitable outcome of a church that gathers together and confesses their sins together is that they're going to be a unified body. 
It's a means of purifying us. So when you miss the Lord's Supper, you miss that particular time when the Lord's church is gathered together for this worship and through self-examination and through confession of our sins together. We come to that one moment one moment in, in our church life where the church is more unified than at any other time. And that's because we have that common confession of sin as we come together and we examine ourselves to see that we don't eat the supper unworthily. That's when we're a unified body. But there's some of you that have completely missed that. Does that make you a Christian? Does coming to the Lord's Supper make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. There's no grace that comes in the Lord's Supper. It's not a sacrament, as I said, but it is what Christ has called us to do. And when you don't do it, you miss out on the fellowship of Christ's body and with his people. Now, the third thing we notice about them is that they shared at the Lord's throne. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, there are four duties that are mentioned in that verse. The study of doctrine, fellowship, the Lord's table, and prayer. The prayer there is fourth on that list. And one of the things that many Christians do is they put prayer dead last in their duties for Christ. It comes dead last also on the corporate level. And I mean that there are churches today that no longer consider that prayer is an important thing. It was a tradition among Baptists for many years that we called the Wednesday night services the prayer meeting. I remember when I was growing up that when somebody asked you, are you going to prayer meeting? Well, you, you automatically knew that that meant Wednesday night. You were going to go to church on Wednesday night. Now, it wasn't that we didn't pray on Sundays or other days of the week. We just had this particular day that we set apart where the whole church would come together for prayer. Today, most churches don't have church on Sunday nights, much less to have it on Wednesday nights. And the result is that there's no longer an emphasis on prayer. Now, what we've tried to do in our church is to preserve that idea of the prayer meeting. And so you can look on your bulletin this morning, and you'll see at the schedule of services there in the middle at the very top, it'll say, it'll say prayer meeting. It'll say midweek service, prayer meeting. On Wednesday nights, what do we do? Well, we have a sermon, just like we do in our other services. We have singing, we do that. But you get this special prayer page on Wednesday night that comes with all the, the list of requests that people have made that they want us to pray over, to have the whole church come together to pray about. So we list all those things out. And what we do is we emphasize that personal prayer and corporate church prayer. But again, I would say there are some members of Briam Baptist Church who have never seen that prayer page. Now, one thing that you ought to do is that you ought to be a person of prayer. And if you can't come to the Wednesday night service when we're having that prayer meeting, you should at least do this. You should ask, where can I get a copy of that prayer page? Let me see what people are praying about. I want to join in on that. I want to pray for people. I realize not everybody can come on Wednesday nights and there are services you can't attend because other things that, you know, working and so forth and schedules. But at least do this. Be a person who says, I'm concerned about what the church is praying for. Where can I get my hands on that prayer page? Prayer is the duty of every church member. Now, one thing I would remind you of is that we do have a card that you can fill out and you can put a prayer request on that. And uh, 
we take those special prayer requests, and that's how those things get on the prayer page. People ask me all the time, would you pray about this? What I don't have is the ability of the apostles to call to remembrance all things. And so we invented this little thing called the blue prayer card. If you need one, an usher will give it to you. Just ask them, and you can fill out your prayer request, and we'll pray over that. And if you desire, or I should say, maybe say that gets transferred to the prayer page. If you don't want us to do that, we don't. But all those blue prayer cards get transferred to that prayer page so the members of Berean Baptist Church can know what we're praying about. Prayer is the duty of every church member. And folks, more than a duty, that is a blessed privilege because a praying church is a powerful church and it is a blessed church. The book of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So prayer is your opportunity to step right into the throne room of God. So here we have a church of action. They're good students of God's word. They believe in the partnership of fellowship. They obey by by coming to the Lord's table to worship at that time. They prayed both privately and corporately. They were a praying people. Now let me ask you, what happens when a church responds this way? What happens when a church is a church of action that has these things that mentions, it's mentioned here in Acts chapter 2? Well, what happened to the church at Jerusalem was this. There was an explosion in the church. There was an explosion. In Acts chapter 115, there are 120 disciples. You have a church with 120 members. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says they're all there with one accord. They're in one place. They were faithful to meet together because they were an expectant people. These 120 disciples were a praying group. And then at the end of that day, at the end of the day of Pentecost, that church had grown to 3,120 disciples. The church exploded with growth, and that growth continued. In chapter 4, you find that 5,000 more, counting just the men, had been added to the church. At a separate time, in Acts chapter 5, it says, And the believers were more added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. So this is a church that exploded in growth. Their hearts were right. People were studying. They were fellowshipping. They were worshiping. They were praying. And God took that church and set it on fire, and it became a blazing fire in the city of Jerusalem. So what happened to the people that saw this? Well, the community was astounded. They saw it, and they were astounded. It says, and fear came upon every soul. Verse 43 says, fear came upon them. Now, first, that means that fear came upon people that were inside the church. And this fear that it's speaking of is an awesome sense of the presence of God. It's what we call reverential fear. I remember the day that I was working on this sermon was the very same day that Eric Hill called me from Camp Roberts. Before he left, he asked the church that we would pray for him. He said, will you pray for me that I'll be a good testimony before the men that I command? And it hadn't been three days when Eric left that he called me, and he had already been able to win a fellow soldier to Christ. That following Sunday, he gathered ten men, contacted an independent church, Baptist church in Paso Robles, and took those men to church. So when he called me, Eric was sky high, because he, he felt 
the presence of God. I mean, he knew the awesomeness of God and what God can do. And I was listening to his story over the phone, and I could feel it. I mean, I, I felt that presence of God. I got cold chills. This is what happened in this church. They, they, these people saw what God could do, and they were struck with fear. And that's the reverence that you get when you know that God is working. But there's also another meaning here. The word fear is also given to us in the sense of being terrified. The word fear here is the same word from which we get phobia. You ever met people that have phobias? And people that are afraid of something? You know, I remember the day that I uh, baptized Lene Zamacona. We got everybody ready to go up to the baptistry to baptize and I walked down into the water and I turned around and motioned for Lene to come down in the water to be baptized. But she was just standing there and she was terrified. She wouldn't come down in the water. Now everybody out here was sitting and waiting and watching for her to be baptized and I was coaxing her and coaxing her and she wouldn't come down into the water. That day I stayed after church for two hours coaxing her to come down into the water, finally just trying to get her to take that plunge where she would be baptized. Well, what was wrong with her? She had a fear. She had a phobia. She was terrified. She couldn't move. And and that's what a fear does. It stops you dead in your tracks so you can't move. And here's what happened in this community at Jerusalem. They saw what was going on in this church. They saw what was happening with the apostles. They saw the miracles. They saw people leaving Judaism. They saw them becoming followers of Christ. And there was fear that came upon them. Now, for a time, even the Jewish leaders were afraid to move and do anything. All opposition against the gospel would stop there because they were afraid. They saw what was happening, and so they became terrified that something would happen to them if they opposed this great movement. You know, it's kind of interesting that if you read about this from John Gill's commentary, he makes a comment here about what the Ethiopic version of Scripture says. He says that it, that, that particular version says, and all animals feared the apostles. And he made the comment as if, as if the very brute creatures stood in awe of the apostles. Folks, that's the way it is when God moves. When God moves, all creation stands in amazement. Wouldn't it be something if our community was astounded by what happens in Berean Baptist Church? Now, the end of the chapter says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And that means that they were so much filled with the Spirit, they had so much love for each other and for those that were around that they gained favor even with those who weren't believers. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the community was affected. And how were they affected? Souls got saved. Now the church is in the place where God wanted it to be. He blessed it because they were doing what he said to do. The, the, The thing was to return a blessing to them for that. When the church gets to the place where it's pure and clean in the eyes of God, when we are devoted to the mission of God, when we're working together for the glory of God, that's when God will extend the influence of this church beyond the four walls of this building. That's when the community becomes affected. Now, we all want to see people saved, don't we? I don't think there's anybody here who would raise your hand today and say, I'm not interested in people being saved. We are interested in it. And when will it happen? when we line ourselves up with God's plan for the ages, and not until then, we will affect 
the community. How? We have to be different from the world. We can't be like the -the run-of-the-mill compromisers that you find in so many churches today. We've got to do the very same things they did. We have to become an active witness, and God will make us a growing church. That's what happens to when you respond to the duties of this call. When you get things right, when you have the right doctrine, when you get into fellowship, when you have the worship, when you have the prayer, that's when you'll see the church explode. Now, perhaps today we won't see it exactly in the way that it happened on Pentecost. In all the history of the church, Pentecost has never been repeated. It's not been duplicated. But I don't think that we read this in the Scriptures today because we're expected to have another Pentecost or we're expected to have signs and miracles and wonders that will happen in the church. We don't read it for that reason. We're not going to see perhaps a numerical Pentecost or, again, the signs and the miracles. But what I think it does teach is that we can expect a harvest. The Feast of Pentecost was given in the Bible as a feast to thank God for sending the harvest. It is more than coincidental that God chose Pentecost to send the Holy Spirit because there was a time of a harvest. And the harvest was a harvest of souls. This is what God intended. And he used Pentecost to bring that great harvest of souls. Now I want to make that the summation of my message today. If we respond to our duty, we will reap the harvest. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Oh, friends and members of Brian, what is it that you want for this church? Do you want it to be a growing church? Would you like for our influence to be felt in Ronard Park and Santa Rosa and the surrounding communities? How will that be done? We must stay in the word. We've got to have steadfast continuance in God's word. Let's meet together. Let's come together for fellowship. Let's worship in our church. And let's not be here just because there are programs that go on. But let's come here because we sincerely desire to worship God. And then, folks, let's pray. And let's just keep on praying. Those are the duties of God's people. So let's do it. Let's reach others with the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time in your word today. May we take the example that we find of this church in Jerusalem. May we have the same things present in our church today. The word of God, the fellowshipping, the prayers, the witnessing, obeying your commands for baptism and for the Lord's Supper and doing all these things to be a unified body where we can serve you. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us fruit for our labors, and may there be a harvest of souls here. Bless our people today in this invitation. May we understand that Jesus is calling us to these things, and may we do them faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.